please open your Bibles up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Last week we, we stopped halfway through the account of Jesus healing the invalid man. He had seen the man there at the pool waiting to be healed after 38 years of suffering and dealing with this condition. And Jesus, in this display of his full divinity, simply spoke and the man was healed. But we didn't see what happened next after he was healed. So we'll pick up here in verse 9 this morning and we'll read all the way through verse 29. So look there with me, John 5, 9 through 29, and follow along with me as I read. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know it what, who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you please bow with me and let's pray once more. Father, we love your word, and we hunger for it, and we thank you for it, that you accomplish your purposes for which you send it out, and we ask that you would do that now, that you would give us ears to hear and give us fertile soil in our hearts as we hear the word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Who is Jesus? This is, without a doubt, one of the most important questions that you could even begin to ask yourselves. And as we've seen again and again and again and again, over and over and over so far in the Gospel of John, this is why John has written this book, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing we might have life in his name. Our goal in, in coming here week in and week out and hearing the Word of God preached every single week is that we might have our vision of who Jesus is clarified and strengthened and enlarged. This is what mothers need more than anything on Mother's Day and every other day. This is what, what children need and fathers need and workers need and, and elderly folks need and younger folks need. Everyone in the world, our greatest need is to see him for who he is so that we might honor him as he deserves. But what we see in our passage this morning that we've just read is that, that Jesus is not always seen clearly for who he is. In fact, this morning we're going to see three wrong views of who Jesus is. Three wrong views of who Jesus is. The first wrong view that we see here in our passage is that Jesus is just a miracle worker. Jesus is just a miracle worker. There is, I, I think there's an intentional contrast here between the response of the Gentile officer who we saw last week whose son was sick to the point of death and this invalid man who who had, had suffered for 38 years, this invalid man who was a Jew. Uh, both were recipients of the healing power of Jesus. Jesus simply spoke, and the boy lived. Jesus simply spoke, and the invalid man walked. But the Gentile, chapter 4, verse 43, says he believed. Him and all of his household. They, they saw the sign, and they believed the message. But this invalid man responded differently. Let's look there. Verse 9. John says that day was the Sabbath. We'll come back to this. That was, this was an issue. This day was the Sabbath, so the Jews asked the man why he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. And instead of rejoicing that he had been healed, instead of glorifying God, look what he does. He blame shifts. You know, this man doesn't want to get into trouble, and so he points the finger outward and says, well, the man who, who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Look, go find him. You know, this sounds to me a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? But that woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Oh, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. This man is, is deflecting the criticism and deflecting the punishment. He's essentially throwing Jesus under the bus. And so they ask him to identify, well, who was it that healed you? And he says in verse 13, well, the man who had been healed, he did not know who it was, for Jesus had, had slipped away in the crowd. He had withdrawn. There was a crowd there in that place. Jesus apparently, he was not interested in the attention that would come from healing this man. He had bigger purposes in mind than simply performing miracles. But it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And here, he gives this man a peek into why he performed this miracle in the first place. What does he say? See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen 
to you. We saw last week, didn't we, that suffering is a symptom of sin. It's a terrible, terrible symptom. Some suffering, not all suffering, some suffering is a result of specific sin. It seems like this was the case for this invalid man. We don't know exactly what the specific cause of this man's suffering was, but Jesus here clearly, he connects it with sin. And he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So I ask you, what could be worse than 38 years of suffering? What could be worse than 38 years of long prolonged suffering. I mean, surely the worst thing that could happen to this man would be just a relapse, that he might go right back to where he was, but something worse? What could be worse than 38 years of suffering? An eternity of suffering. That's what this temporary suffering was meant to teach this man. That's what this physical miracle of, of healing was supposed to teach him. You see, this man, he had a problem, his physical suffering, but Jesus says, I've come to heal, I've come to solve a much bigger problem, not just the problem of suffering, but the cause of your suffering. I have come to solve the problem of sin. Jesus, he wasn't just a miracle worker. Every sign that Jesus performed, it pointed forward to a much bigger eternal reality. He did not just come merely healing the sick, merely causing the blind to see, merely causing the lame to walk. He did so as a pointer, an indicator, that he has come to crush the curse of sin. That even the worst of suffering here on this side of eternity, here in the present, is nothing compared to an eternity of suffering. The aim of Jesus, it was not just physical health, but holiness. And not merely an improved life here and now, but eternal life in him. See, Jesus' aim was never primarily physical healing. He is always more concerned with our eternal well-being. Is it so with us? Are we more concerned with our our temporary physical well-being or our eternal spiritual well-being? Are we more concerned with our health physically or our holiness, our health spiritually? This, by the way, it ought to help give us some shape for us for how we ought to think about mercy ministries as a church. Churches ought to care deeply about the physical needs of those around us. Amen? Amen? Yes? Okay. We ought to care about meeting the physical needs of our neighbors. There's hungry people around us. There are poor people around us. There are needy people around us. We ought to care deeply about meeting these needs, but never as an end in itself. We ought to love our neighbor by seeking to meet their needs in proportion to their importance and urgency. And friend, nothing is more important and urgent than that they see clearly the glory of Christ. This is why Jesus is is healing this man here. But how does he respond? Right away, verse 15. 
says the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him right away. And clearly the man had been healed but did not get the message to him. Jesus was just a miracle worker and one who had done that work on the Sabbath day. Which leads us to our second wrong view of Jesus. The second wrong view of Jesus here in this passage is that Jesus is a lawbreaker. Jesus is a lawbreaker. And now we deal with the issue of the Sabbath. Look back up to verse 9. John says, Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Is the Sabbath day, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. It is not lawful. And the question is, according to whom? Now, we know the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, that's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the fourth commandment. But you can read all through the law from beginning to end, backwards and forwards, as many times as you would like, and you will not find a word in the law of God about not carrying your bed on the Sabbath. Now, this was not God's law, but it was tradition. See, the rabbis had listed out 39 types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath day. It's called the melechot. Let me try that again. Okay. The melechot. And according to them, these 39 rules, you could not sow, you could not plow, you could not reap, you could not tie a knot, you could not untie a knot. You could not bake anything or sift anything. You couldn't start a fire. You couldn't put out a fire on the Sabbath day. And the very last of these 39 rules was that you could not carry on the Sabbath day. You were forbidden from carrying anything outside of your domain. And you were forbidden from lifting anything up over your head. And so seeing this man who had been there for 38 years, pick up his bed, carry it, and walk, was an offense to them. It was breaking their law. And when they discovered that it was Jesus who performed the work of healing on the Sabbath day, verse 16, it tells us clearly, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They thought Jesus was a lawbreaker. So we have to, to answer this question. We have to wrestle with this. Was he a lawbreaker? Did Jesus break the law? Not the law of God, but the tradition of man. Now, we've said this before, and we'll, we'll say it again, that traditions are wonderful tools. They are helpful aids, helpful teachers, if... Through them, we see clearly the glory of Christ. But if 
our traditions become so sacred, so, so necessary, so essential to our worship that we just can't wrap our minds around a God. We can't wrap our minds around a Christ who doesn't involve our traditions. Then we're no better than the Pharisees here in this passage who were face to face with God in the flesh but couldn't see him because he didn't play by their rules. Jesus, he didn't care too much for the traditions and regulations and, and requirements and the rules that they had set in place. He was there with a purpose that transcended their Sabbath regulations. He was there to do the work of God. Look at his defense there in verse 17. This is, is brilliant. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. See his defense? He said, God is still working. God is at work, upholding the universe right now. Has God stopped working? Has God stopped working? No, of course not. Come on. We don't worship a God who only works six days of the week. God's better than Chick-fil-A, y'all. He works seven days a week. He doesn't just create the world and then just let it spin off on its own. God is at work every moment in every day in every molecule in his world. Is God not right now feeding the birds of the air? Is God not right now causing the crops of the ground to grow, causing the wind to blow to and fro, causing the waves to rise and to crash? Is he not at this very minute giving you life and breath and everything? Of course he is. If God were not at work every moment of every day, then you and I and the entire universe would cease to exist. The rabbis, they, they had to wrestle with this. Really, they were so rigid in their understanding here that they, they had to wrestle with the question, does God break the Sabbath by continuing to work and uphold the universe seven days a week? And you know the answer that they came up with? They said that since the whole world is the domain of God, technically he never carries anything outside of his domain. And since God is, is bigger than anybody and anything, technically, in all his lifting and working and doing, he never lifts anything above his head. So God is therefore safe from breaking the law of the Sabbath. But Jesus here, he, he says, whatever regulations you come up with, whatever excuses you come up with to say it's okay for God to continue to work, guess what? They also apply to me. My father is working, and I am working even now. Is God a lawbreaker by continuing to work? Of course not, and neither am I. Why? Because I am one with the father. You see, when the work of creation was finished, God, he, in a sense, rested that creative work was finished, but not for long. Sin entered into his good creation. Sin and all of its deadly consequences, sin and death, sin and, and disease, sin and dishonor, and then began another work. The unfolding of the eternal plan of God from beginning of the ages, the unfolding, the work 
of redemption. Jesus says, I am here accomplishing God's work of redemption. That's why I'm here. That's, that's what this healing was about. I have work to do. Don't tell me to rest. See, this scene, it, it marks the beginning of this rumbling tension here between Jesus and the Pharisees that will only get worse throughout the rest of this book. See, they hated that Jesus didn't keep their tradition. And they had him pegged now as a lawbreaker, but even worse than that, now they saw him as a blasphemer. This is the third wrong view of who Jesus is. Third, Jesus is a blasphemer. And this is where we're, we're going to spend the majority of our time because this, I, I believe, is the main point of this text. The main point, I hope we're seeing this clearly, is that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, Jesus is one with the Father. And as God, He is worthy of our lives, worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our honor. There are, are many who will say, wrongly, who will say that Jesus never once claimed to be God. He had many good teachings. We should follow his example. But Jesus never once claimed to be God. This was a fabricated invention of the church. Jesus never said it about himself. But it seems clear to me that the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself here. Verse 18. It says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Here it is. Making himself equal with God. Now, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. I, I see only three possible scenarios here. Either the Jews misunderstood Jesus or he was claiming to be God but was not. Therefore, he's a liar or a blasphemer. Or he was claiming to be God and actually is who he claimed to be. And if that's true, then church, he deserves our worship. Well, what Jesus does next, I think, takes care of option number one. Now, the Jews did not misunderstand what Jesus was saying. How do I know that? Because Jesus doesn't correct them. In fact, he, he doesn't walk it back. He digs that hole even deeper. He makes as many as four distinct claims to deity here, in just a few verses, we're going to walk through each one, four distinct claims to deity in just a few verses here. For one, as we've already seen, he says the Son and the Father are completely united in their work. Jesus is completely united in the work of God. So much so that Jesus says the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Just, just think about this for a moment with me. Jesus, being completely one, completely united with the Father, was completely aware of all of the billions of works of God that you and I are just oblivious to every single day. God is, at all times, accomplishing infinitely more than any of us are, are even minutely aware of. Every time that we ask, God, why did this happen this way? God, what are you doing? Jesus, in his divinity, never once had to ask that question. 
How many things is, is God accomplishing even right now in, in the preaching of this sermon? You know, every single week we come here, the sermon is delivered, the message goes out. I have no idea what that does. But I trust and I believe that God uses his word to accomplish his purposes. Jesus wasn't like that. And Jesus, Jesus knew. He had full access to all the infinite wisdom of God at work. Why? Because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? He shows him all that he himself is doing. In these verses, we get a glimpse into the inner workings of the Godhead, what we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, not three gods, one God, three persons. This is what theologians call the ontological trinity. That's a big word, but all it means is it just refers to who God is. Who God is. Not three gods, one God, one God, three persons. Each person is fully 100% God. But there's another way that we talk about the Trinity and how they function, which is called the economic trinity. The economic trinity. It's not two different trinities. This is two different ways of talking about the one true God. The ontological trinity is who God is. The economic trinity is how God functions. And what's so hard for us to comprehend is that this one God in three persons, this, this unified God, functions and operates in incredible diversity. And so we see God the Father, he reveals his will to God the Son. God the Father sends God the Son. God the Father shows God the Son all that he himself is doing. And God the Son, he goes and accomplishes the work of the Father. God the Son goes and accomplishes the plan of redemption. God the Son goes and, and dies on the cross. God the Son rises from the dead. So Jesus, he says, the way that you may know that I am one with God, just look at my works. Witness the works that I'm doing. I'm here doing the work of God. No one but God can do the work I'm doing. You've seen some good stuff already, but... So hold on to your seats, because greater works than these are coming, and you will marvel when you see them. So claim number one, the Son and the Father are united in their work. Claim number two, the second claim to deity is here in verse 21. Jesus claims the power of resurrection life. Jesus claims the power of resurrection life. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Look down to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Jews, they believed in a coming resurrection of the dead. They believed that when the Messiah came, the dead would hear his voice and rise. 
Well, Jesus, he, he's here saying plain as day, I am the Messiah. And the hour is coming and it's here right now when the dead will hear my voice and will live. Lord willing, we will make it to John chapter 11 one day. I'm hoping to be there by October if the Lord tarries and he allows it. And we will read the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember the account, the conversation that Jesus had with Martha? John chapter 11, verse 21, he said this. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Listen to this. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. What did Jesus do next? Jesus went down to the tomb. He called Lazarus out by name. And that dead man got up and came out of the tomb, walking out of the grave. It was a demonstration of the life-giving power of Christ, and it was a foretaste of the coming resurrection. We need to know that we will, every one of us, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, we will be raised from the dead just like Lazarus. And what will come next on that day? Judgment. Judgment. This is the third claim to deity here. Third, Jesus claims to be the judge of all. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is a shocking statement. Every Jew would have known, every Jew would have agreed, God is the judge. But Jesus, he, he says here, now, that, now God has delegated that work of judgment to him. Now Christ is the authority to which all men everywhere will answer. And you see the irony here, don't you? Here is Jesus giving a defense of accusation from the men that are accusing him of breaking the law, when in reality, Jesus Christ himself is the judge to which all men will one day give an account. Verse 27, it says, He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I just want to speak plainly and clearly for a moment. Because this truth is more important than just about anything else you could spend your time thinking about today. There is coming a day when every single person who has ever died will hear the voice of Jesus just like Lazarus and their bodies will rise up from the dead. And all of us 
will give an account of our lives before Christ the judge. Everyone you know, everyone in your family, everyone in your workplace, everyone in your neighborhood, everyone in this church, everyone here in this room this morning. And we will be divided into two clear categories. The resurrection of judgment and the resurrection of life. And for many, this, this thought is just absolutely terrifying. Uh, you know what it's like to hear the voice of your father you know, calling out your name when you just knew you were guilty. And if your father was a just dad, if he was a just man, you would receive some sort of punishment that corresponded to your guilt. If you don't know that voice, maybe you know the sound of a siren behind you as you're driving 20, 30 miles an hour faster than you should have done down Highway 17. We know what it's like, and that will be what it's like for so many who will rise and go to judgment. They will hear the voice of Jesus and will be terrified as they come to judgment because they are infinitely guilty and face eternal wrath. Their thoughts accuse them, their words accuse them, their actions accuse them, their lives accuse them, and they know it. But there is another way. He tells us here, you might have a sense of what it was like to hear the voice of your father calling you, calling you into his arms for embrace. And calling you into his love. That will be what it's like for those who, who come in the name of the Son. Why? Because although we're guilty, our records have been wiped clean. And that's why Jesus came. He came to save us from the judgment that we deserve. You see, these, these good works that, that Jesus talks about here, they're not the basis of our judgment. They're not the, the foundation of our salvation. For those who are in Christ, for those who know Christ, the claim of the believer on the last day, uh, the day of judgment, will not be, look at what I've done. Look at my actions. Look at my good works. Look at my prayers. Look at my deeds. Look at my attendance. Look at my works. It will be, look at Christ. Look what Christ has done. Christ has lived on my behalf. Christ has lived perfectly in my place. Christ has borne the wrath against me, against my sin. Christ has paid for my sin. Christ has endured my judgment. Christ has risen for me. Look at Christ. He, He is my righteousness. And because He is, believer, you can look forward to this day of resurrection because the judge himself has died to make you righteous. You are innocent in the sight of God. You're raised not to judgment, but raised to life. No, our works are not the basis of our judgment for believers. They are the evidence that we have, in fact, been born again into the family of God. But for those who don't know the Lord, they don't have His righteousness given to them. All they have to claim before the judge is their deeds and their works and their actions and their thoughts and their words, and they condemn them. This is a sobering thought, church. Christ Jesus is the judge of all 
the earth and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is the fourth and final claim that Jesus makes here. Fourth, Jesus claims to be worthy of the same honor as the Father. Verse 23. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What could be more clear? (laughs) This is, without a doubt, uh, an unapologetically clear claim to equality with God. Jesus says, I deserve equal praise. I deserve equal worship. I deserve equal honor. And if you don't honor me, you don't honor him. This is a a direct contradiction to our pluralistic society. Our culture wants us to either believe that there is no God, or if there is one, then we can choose whatever path we desire in order to please him. Well, Jesus says, no, if you don't honor me, then you don't honor God. Our Jewish friends do not honor God. Our Muslim friends do not honor God. And no one in this room honors God unless you love and cherish and worship the Son. He is the only way to honor God the Father. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You must honor the Son. How might we do that? That's the question, isn't it? How might we honor the Son? What I want us to see here as we close is that that question is the same essential question as how might we escape the resurrection of judgment? It's the same essential question as how might we receive the redemptive work of God the Father through God the Son? How might we honor Him? It's very simple. We honor Him by hearing and by believing. We honor him by hearing and by believing. Don't you you love the simple message of the gospel? Verse 24, look there with me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life right now. Right now. We don't have to wait until eternity begins. We don't have to wait until the day of resurrection. Those who who hear and believe have eternal life right now. He does not come into judgment, but has passed already from death to life. The verdict is in. And we don't have to wait and and sweat it out wondering what will happen on the day of resurrection. We have present life, present joy here and now if... And only if we honor the Son here and now by hearing and by believing. So I ask you, I want you to ask yourself in your heart, who do you say that Jesus is? 
Is he to you simply a miracle worker? Someone who has power to, to work miracles in your life, do good things for you, make you well, give you success? Is he a lawbreaker? Someone who steps on your toes, breaks your traditions, doesn't seem to conform to your rules? Is he a liar? Are we wasting our time? Or is he who he claims to be? Is he God in the flesh? You may have read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do so. He has this famous quote in there. I'll read it as we close. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Church, the words of Jesus are clear. And we have heard them once again. Will we believe them? Will we live as if they were true? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you for sending Jesus to live on our behalf, to die in our place, to rise, to offer eternal life for any who would come to him in faith. Lord, we pray that if there are any here who don't know you right now, who do not honor the Son right now, would you give them saving faith? And we pray for, for those of us who are wavering, who are, are struggling with doubt. God, would you strengthen our faith in the Messiah? And Lord, would you take us out of this place with the good news of the gospel quick on our lips to share with those who need to hear it? We ask all this in Christ's name for your glory. Amen.